Today we're um, looking at a, uh, one verse, and we may only get halfway through. We'll just see how we go. Um, we're looking at one verse today, and it is the most famous verse in the whole of the Bible today. John three sixteen. It's a verse that is very, very rich in grace. There's so much goodness in this verse. There's a reason why it's so famous. Um, and we, we need to slow down. You know, sometimes uh, we approach Scripture as something to be consumed. We approach it as information uh, and not something to soak in. This is a verse to soak in. Uh, so much richness. Um, it's, uh, I think this verse, a, a lot of Scripture is like this. And in fact, in John's Gospel, what you'll actually find is that there's multiple facets to everything that John writes down. So if you actually read some commentators on John's gospel, uh, they will often say things like, we think this is what John means, but he might mean these two other things as well. And that, that's John. He's just, he's bringing out all these kind of facets and, and you can look at a lot of stuff in John and just go, this is like a precious jewel. And if you just look at it from a different angle, you see a different hue, you see a different uh, color in it, a different kind of beauty in it. And this verse is one of those. We could just turn around and look at it from a different angle and just go, that is really, really special. So, let me start with this. Would you mind standing with me? I'd invite you if you're comfortable. I'm going to pray in a moment, but I just, I actually just want to, I want to slow us down a little bit. Um... Because if you, we all kind of, well, maybe not all of us, but most probably a lot of us come and, and it's been busy or you, you've got a busy heart or a busy mind and we, we just need to slow down a bit. Because if we approach, well, in general, if we approach God's word as information as something to be consumed, like we do with so many other things, we'll miss the nourishment, the goodness in it. But in particular, this verse this morning, we could just go, yeah, I know that one. Uh, we don't even need to open a Bible to read this one. We, uh, we know this one. So I wonder if you just close your eyes for a minute and let's all just slow down a little bit. I wonder as uh, you've got your eyes closed there if you can... Give some of your focus to uh, Jesus, who promises that he's with us right now. And like a, um, like a, like a, a grandfather would sit and tell stories to his grandkids and they'd hang on every word. Uh, the things that Jesus says are like that, but infinitely greater. We want to we hang on every word that he says. Just uh, take a moment to uh, clear anything out that you need to. If there's uh, some cares and concerns and worries, why don't you give those to him? If you know that you're, you're coming and there's some unfinished business between 
he and you. Why don't you, would you just talk to him about that? Say sorry, ask him to cleanse you. Ask him to clean your ears out if there's been other things that have uh, filled them up. God, we, uh, we want to be alive. We want to be vibrantly alive. We, by your spirit, want to be unstoppable. We want your life and your truth and your words to dwell in us and to energize us and to strengthen us and propel us. Would you still us today? Help us to listen to you. Amen. Why don't you grab a seat? I watched a, uh, as a side note, I watched a, um, an interview with Eugene Peterson a while ago. And, you know, um, he said that, I mean, he was an older guy and he was probably retired when he said this, but he, uh, he said that he, before he even really gets to scripture, he would spend an hour in the morning with a cup of tea, slowing his heart down, slowing his head down and getting some kind of sense of stillness before he actually comes to God. I said, man be nice to have a spare hour to do that. That was one of my thoughts. Um, but there's something in that, right? Otherwise, God just becomes another job that we do sometimes. Um, well, let's read the verse. Uh, you probably don't even have to look it up. John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world. Now, quick note there, that... God being loving wouldn't have been that much of a surprise to the Israelites, probably, right? They thought, no, nah, he loves us. But this, this category of the world, that God's love would be that expansive, that would have blown their categories. That was from left field for them. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Here we go. Let's kick in. God loves you. The uh, title of this message is Best News Ever. That is the best news ever. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus and no one's ever told you that God loves you, he does. Because by definition, if you're in the world, he loves you. <laughs> and you're all in the world. For God so loved the world. Well, let's just take this bit by bit. God loves. Now, here's a good question. Why does God love? Why does God love? And, and we could just kind of extrapolate it out a little bit uh, because I think sometimes it's helpful to work from human experience back to God. Even though God is on a whole other level, um, there are some areas that overlap that help us to understand things. So let me ask you this question more broadly. 
Why do people love? Why do they love? Here's one reason why people love. People love because something is lovely. (laughs) I think that's pretty straightforward, and it is. There's nothing wrong with this. You know, people see an object or a person that has something good or something aesthetically pleasing and attractive, and they're, they're drawn to it. Uh, you could look at your child if you're a parent and you see him doing something so cute and you just go, oh, I love you. Right? There's something that is actually going on in that moment that stirs love up in you. Or you could go home in the afternoon and it's sunset and you look out in, in an autumn sunset and you just go, that is amazing. I love that. I love that. There's something beautiful going on that you're drawn to. You can see traits in other people that that you find desirable. And I'm not even just talking about romantic um, friendships and relationships. Just go, I just love you. I love that thing about you. There's something in the other person. There's something in in, in the thing that stirs up love in you. That's one of the reasons why people love. Here's another reason. People love when they're being loved. Now, some of you might go, oh, this is a bit messy. No, well, I don't, not necessarily. It's not necessarily messy. I actually think it's the way that relationships actually work. People love more when they're being loved. Um, you know, relationships aren't one-sided. You know, you, you enter into a relationship and love is given and received. That's how relationships work. Uh, the current flows in both directions. There may be times where the current's predominantly flowing in one direction, but the way that relationships, healthy relationships work is it's never an ongoing thing that it runs in one direction. If you've got love running in one direction all the time, there's something dysfunctional about it. At some point in time, it switches and the love runs back in the other direction. I've heard people say before that there's certain types of people who are takers, um, and this is, this is a, a bit of a statement about relationships where the current kind of only runs one way. And I want to just say to you, that's not really the norm. In a normal relationship, love is given and received. And uh, who, who knows that when someone loves you, it's easier to love them? Who knows that? It just is. Let's be honest about it. Um, we're in church, all right? And, and you, don't, you don't want to lie, okay? Here's the, uh, here's the third thing. Kind of connected, but this is where it starts to get a little bit complicated. People love because there's a payoff, there's a personal payoff. Um, you, you love because people love because the other person gives them something they want, and and you give something they want. Um, this is kind of a lower version of the previous one. This one can get messy and dysfunctional, uh, but let me give you a couple of examples. Um, this is where people love other people and they care for other people so that they get peace. So if you, if you don't actually give them what they want, you don't get peace. And one of the, um, uh, if you're married, fellas, you should never ever say this, just as a side note. One of the things that uh, married men say sometimes is they say, happy wife, happy life. What do you do? You love her, you keep her happy so that you can do what you want. All right, there's a payoff for you. Um, I mean, I have even, and uh, apologies, parents, I'm not going to go into this too much, but I've even heard that 
uh, sex operates in marriage relationships sometimes in that in that kind of way as well. If you just give someone what they want, then you can get what you want. See, it, it isn't really about the other person. It's uh, it's about the person who wants what they want. But that is another reason why people love. People love because there's a payoff. Here's a big one in our society, I think, is that you know, people love because it feels good. It's a massive one in our culture. Um, but the problem is, and you actually see this around the place a bit, um, that when love feels good and right, people stay in relationship. But when it isn't feeling like that, uh, there's a tendency sometimes to step out of that. Now, the reality is love can feel really good sometimes. Who can say an amen to that? It can, all right? We are not against love feeling really good. But who knows that love sometimes is really hard. <laughs> and it's not fun in the classical sense. It's just not fun. Well, let's now bring it back to God. These are some of the classic reasons why people love. Let's bring them back into John 3.16 and see how they fit with John 3.16. Remember, we're asking the question, why does God love? Why does he love? Let's run through. Let's start with the top. Does God love because something is lovely? Because we are lovely. Does he love the world because we are lovely? Well, there's a residual image of God in humanity, right? That's pretty clear from Scripture. But you just need to know that the world, in John's calculation, is actually not a positive term. Whenever the world kind of shows up, um, it's, it's kind of pretty messy. Um, you know, when, when John's saying that God loves the world, for God so loved the world, he actually isn't making a quantitative statement. He's making a qualitative statement. He's saying the world is actually a bad place and God loves it. That's really what he's saying. The world in John's eyes are pretty negative. Is pretty negative. If you go three verses down to verse 19, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The world loves darkness. That's not a positive statement. You can go across to John 4.42. They said to the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the saviour of the world. Why would Jesus even be called the saviour of the world if the world didn't have a significant problem? We could go on and on. You get into John 15, verse 18 to 19. If the world hates you, know that it hated me first. You go on and on through John's stuff and you realise that the world doesn't have a particularly good rap. From John, so we're just going to um, strike that one out. Okay, that that mustn't be what John three sixteen is talking about. Let's go to the next one. God loves us because we love Him. Well, there's not a whole lot more that we need to say about that. I just read you a scripture before about how the world hates Jesus, and that's a natural kind of posture of the world. That's our natural posture: is that we don't actually really like Jesus. Um, The natural state of the world is actually enmity to God. We're actually, Paul talks about in Romans 5, he says we're naturally God's enemies. That's what we are. So this whole idea that God would love us because we love him, well, we can just get rid of that one as well. 
okay? Um, what about the next one? God loves us because he gets some kind of payoff. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I don't even know what this would be. What kind of payoff could God get that he would even be interested in from us? Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything belongs to him anyway. Uh, Psalm 50, uh, the people in Psalm 50 are thinking that God needs stuff from him. And, and God tells him, look, I don't need anything. I own everything. You know, the, the idea that God would love us because he gets some kind of payoff from us. I mean, it'd be like a kid going to their dad getting $20 to buy their dad a Father's Day present and then boasting about what they bought their dad. It was all his stuff anyway. This is what it is with God, right? Everything's his stuff anyway. So what kind of payoff would you even want to give him? He's not needy anyway. It's just, it's just plain weird to think that God would get some kind of payoff from us. So let's get rid of that one. God loves us because it feels good. Well, there probably isn't much that needs to be said about this one. Um, Do you know God's love for us meant that his son would be hated, falsely condemned to death and be crucified on a wooden Roman cross. It doesn't feel good. None of that feels good. God is not staying in the game of loving you and I because he gets a kick out of it. (laughs) Because he gets a kick out of it. There is a joy in him in the way that he loves us, but it's not like there's a good feeling for God and that's why he loves people. If, If that was the reason for him loving, he would have been gone a long time ago. So, if that's out, why does God love the world? Do you know why he loves the world? Because he's a loving person. That's why he loves the world. God loves the world because he is a loving person. John says in uh, one of his letters, he says this, 1 John 4, 16, God is love. Now, you've seen this. You know, as I read the examples of why people love other people, some of you are thinking you've missed one out. And the one you've missed out is that people love, not because they're getting anything out of the other person, they love to be, because they're loving people. One of the most amazing sights that I, uh, that I see, honestly, is when I go to the shops, I go down to Grand Central, walking through, and here's a bunch of people pushing people with really severe disabilities through the uh, shopping centre. And... I mean, almost they're like angels. Like, it's just like, it's one of those moments for me because I just go, man, that's, that, that is amazing, isn't it? Isn't it? And do you know what I think? I think they are loving people because it looks like they're not getting a whole lot out of the, uh, the situation that they're in. Now, they may be, but it looks that way to me. You know, love is the most pure when you aren't getting anything out of it. And this is true. This is the case. And it doesn't mean that the other bits, um, the other reasons for love are not love. Some of them are pretty messy. 
It's just that the most concentrated version of love is when you aren't getting anything out of it. It's sacred ground. In those moments, for me, something godlike is going on. You see, God is the most loving person. And he doesn't, I want you to hear this, it doesn't matter whether you love and know Jesus or you don't, hear this. God does not love the world because the world is lovely. He loves the world because he's loving. Now, that has huge ramifications for you personally, right? So when, if you know Jesus and you get up tomorrow morning, or perhaps you don't know Jesus, and you've done something really, really bad in your life, and you go, I don't think God could possibly love me because of what I've done. You're right in the spot that you need to be in because his love for you is never dependent upon anything you did or you didn't do anyway. It was dependent upon who he was as a person. It doesn't, like that's, that's a lie. To get up tomorrow, if you're a Christian here today and you follow Jesus and you get up tomorrow and you do something dumb, which you will, right? you just will, we all will, and you go, oh, maybe now God won't love me. Well, it was never contingent on you getting things right in the first place. It was always contingent on the kind of person he is. So you'll be sweet tomorrow. You hear me? You will be sweet tomorrow because nothing's going to change based on your performance. It wasn't performance that got you in and it won't be performance that gets you out. Now, here's the question as we keep moving through John 3.16. What is the measure of God's love? If If you're a sinus and you're just going like, Let's see if we can test the quality of this stuff. How would you test the quality of it? I mean, we do this stuff all the time. This is a, this is a nature of how love is understood. Take romantic relationships, for example. Let me give you an example. Uh, see if anyone can work out if there's anything wrong with this, all right? And, and if, you're a, if you're a bloke and you're married and you can't, you need to come and see me, all right? Because I'll have a chat with you about it, right? Okay, so imagine this. The husband... It's the wife's birthday coming up, right? And the husband goes to the shops. He goes, I'm going to get a good present for my wife, okay, because I really love her. And so he, um, he goes to the shops, okay, and he, and he finds that the actual thing that he wants to get is actually quite a bit more than the thing that's almost as good, right? But it's heaps cheaper, right? And so he goes... I'm going to get the thing that's cheaper. Now, it's okay to buy something on a sale. This is, this is not the point, okay? So he buys the thing on the sale, and, um, and, and the wife's birthday comes, and he has it wrapped up, and it's all good. She unwraps it, and then the moment after she unwraps it, she goes, oh, this is lovely, all right? Because wives are very gracious. He goes, you wouldn't believe it, eh? I could have got the more expensive one, but I save 50 bucks <laughs> by getting this one. Is it, can anyone see a problem? <laughs> That's so good. Well, maybe we need to meet in a hall somewhere after this. What's the problem? 
Well, I'll tell you what part of the problem is, is that the husband is benefiting out of the gift giving and, and the nature of gift giving is sacrifice and personal investment is actually what makes a gift really valuable. Isn't that true? Because you could, you could make a gift that costs you nothing financially and put a whole bunch of time into it and someone who you love will just so deeply appreciate it. Why? Because you put yourself into it. That's what you did. You put yourself into it. You could buy something. You could stretch to buy something. And I'm not suggesting that you be unwise in your expenditure, but you could stretch yourself to buy something that is kind of, it's going to be a really significant cost for you. And that, that will mean something as well because there's a sacrifice in there. There's, there's a part of kind of you that you're giving the other person. If you owned a billion dollars and you had... million in petty cash and you spent a million dollars on a gift for your spouse and you didn't even notice, that would not be as loving as something that cost you significantly. Something that has you invested. Is that is that true? Am I am I out of my tree, wives? Is that is that okay? See the degree of love within a gift is connected to the amount of the person which is invested in it. The degree of love within a gift is connected to the amount of the person which is invested in it. Or another way of saying it is the love one has for another is seen in the amount of self-sacrifice built into the gift. Why? Because love is about giving yourself to the other person. That's what it is. It's always about that. It's always about giving yourself to the other person. It's always about giving a piece of yourself away. That's what love is. And the more personal and the more self-sacrificing the gift, the more love is being expressed. The essence of love is the giving of oneself to another. Do you know why that's the way that it works with us? Because it's the way it works with God. And God's at the center of everything. That's why love is the way that it is. Now, verses didn't get added to the Bible until way after. The Bible was written. But do you know what 1 John 3.16 is? Do you know what that is? Listen to this. This is how we know what love is. NIV version. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's how you know what love is. What is it? The measure, and you see this in John 3.16, the measure of the quality of God's love is how much he's personally invested in it. Now, how personally invested is God in his gift to the world, in his love of the world? Couldn't be more. What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. There is no bigger personal investment than that. It wasn't an angel, David the angel. It wasn't him. He said, David, can you go down and give yourself? I'm going to, he's like the million bucks for the billionaire, right? David the angel could come and do something, maybe. No, not going to do that. Wasn't a servant. Seriously, God could have created R2D2 to come down, right? 
But he didn't. It was his son. The radiance of his glory, as Hebrews 1 tells us. Commentator Morris says this. He says, God gave what was most dear to him. That's what he did. And you know, he, he didn't just give himself to the world in the incarnation, taking him on flesh. He gave himself, his son, to the world in the, in the crucifixion on the cross. So here's, here's what I want you to take away. If you've got in your head that God the Father is some cranky, stingy old guy that just gets upset about stuff and doesn't want to give anything away, you've just got to rework that one because this is the God that is being talked about. This is the person of God that is being talked about here is that the Father gave his son. And don't think it was foisted upon the son either. He was into it as well. They are one. They never do things separately. They loved you and they gave themselves for you. They gave themselves to you. All right. Number two. God loves you. You believe. So what we've just learned is that God's a loving person. We've just learned that the essence of being loving is giving yourself to another. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we learned about this with the self-revelation piece, that the way that relationships work is that we open ourselves up and we give ourselves to each other. So what would the natural kind of next step? For God so loved the world that he gave his only beloved son, that whosoever believes in him. What is this? What is this thing of believing? Is it just believing what he says? And I would say to you, well, kind of, but it's more than that. I want to suggest to you this morning that believing in him is you giving yourself to him. It's you entrusting yourself to him. It's not that you have to do something to earn his love. Believing in Jesus is about entrusting yourself to him. It's about committing your life into his hands. There's a uh, famous uh, tightrope stunt kind of artist guy called Blunden. He was from France. He died in the late 1800s. I understand not from tightrope walking, but he, um, he, was a, he was a trick stunt, kind of high wire kind of guy. Um, he, he was really well known for tightrope walking across Niagara Falls. Uh, he stretched a, a rope across there. He piggybacked his manager. He walked backwards across there, took a stove across, even cooked himself an omelette in the middle and then he lowered the omelette down to the mate of the mist which I've been on which is the uh, little ferry that goes up close to the the um, the falls uh, lowered it down so they could have it on one particular occasion he stretched this wire rope across the top of Niagara Falls and he walked across it and then he uh, went and got a, um, a wheelbarrow and he pushed the wheelbarrow across the uh, falls there you know and then he announced is the way the story's told then he announced to the crowd that, um, that, that he was going to wheel a man in the wheelbarrow across the falls. And, you know, they, they cheer. They said, this is going to be great. A newspaper reporter comes up to Blunden about this proposed stunt. And um, went up to, to interview him. And uh, Blunden asked the reporter, he said, do you think I can, I can do this great feat? 
you know what the uh, reporter said? I really, I really believe you can. I think you're the greatest stunt artist of all time. Blondin says, you really believe I can do it? Well, then hop in. It's a different story then, right? You see, you can stand at a distance, unaffected, not buying in. You can cheer on. You can kind of even say, maybe there's even some of you today that just go, Jesus is who he says he is and I think he's, he's a good rescuer and you can just kind of stand at a distance. But like this uh, reporter with uh, Blunden, he had to work out how real he was going to be about this thing because it wasn't just about whether he believed theoretically that he could do something. All of a sudden it got really personal and really practical. There's a tendency in humanity, we, we know this to for safety. Uh, easy when you're standing on the side of Niagara Falls to just go, I'm going to put myself in harm's way. But imagine this. Imagine if the reporter was stuck in the middle of Niagara Falls on the wire. <laughs> Never done tightrope walking before. Couldn't get off. The only, the only possibility was certain death. And Blunden walked onto the rope with the wheelbarrow and he said, do you think I can push a man off in this wheelbarrow? The reporter would probably say yes. And then he would say, would you like to hop in? It's different then, isn't it? What's the difference? The difference is that there's a predicament that the reporter would be in that changes the way that he thinks about things. It's a different story. You know, knowing your predicament changes the way you engage with the truth about who Jesus is. Well, what does John 3.16 say? It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only beloved son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish. Perish. What does it mean by perish? Well, it means death. It means destruction. Personal destruction. This is the natural consequence of separation from Jesus. Remember John 1 verse 4 in chapter 1, it says, In Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. Answer this question for me, audience interaction time. If you disconnect a light bulb from a socket which is switched on, what happens? It goes off, right? If you stop drinking, and I, I just mean anything, if you stop drinking, what happens? You die. Is this okay? Here's another one. If you turn off someone's life support and they can't live without it and they're in the hospital, what happens to them? They die. They flatline. If you disconnect from the one who is life, Jesus, what happens? You die. Like, you have to. That's just how it works. You have to die. Now, if you go right back to Genesis 3, where humanity turned their back on God, they turned their back on the one that was life and disconnected from him. You know what the warning was in Genesis 2, where, where God says to them, if you eat from the tree that I t- I've told you not to, on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die? Well, they didn't, did they? Not on that day. And in some ways you could look at that and you could go, well, the devil was right. 
Because he said, you won't surely die when you eat of the fruit. But I want you to know this morning, there's there's probably grace in the moment for Adam and Eve, that the executioner didn't kind of, the execution didn't happen straight away. But I also want to say something else to you. The Bible has a much broader definition of death than mere physical death. Um, I, they did begin to die that very day, didn't they? Death got to work on everything. Death got to work on relationships. It got to work on bodies. The back end of Genesis 3 tells us it got to work on the rest of creation. And who knows that death is a creeping thing? Do you know that? Do you ever feel it? you ever feel it in relationships? ever feel it in your body if you're getting old? There's this creeping thing that just wants to come in and take over stuff. And it keeps coming and coming and coming and coming until it gets you. It gets you in the end, right? Only two sure things in the world and they are death and taxes. See, I think the perishing here, which John speaks of, is every kind of perishing, but especially perishing in an eternal sense. You know, if you don't love Jesus, it will lead to your destruction. You don't get to be with God. You end up in the second death, which is hell, disconnected from the one who is life, eternal death under the judgment of God. It's the ultimate unwinding of who you are. You get destroyed. Now, (laughs) that's you in the middle of the tightrope over Niagara, not able to get off. Now, if Jesus comes halfway across and he says to you, I love you, believe in me, wouldn't you just, yes? (laughs) Wouldn't you just do that? When you just say yes, what happens? What happens when you say yes and you believe and you entrust yourself to Jesus? Well, the only thing that can happen, life floods in. <laughs> Flourishing floods in. It has to. Why? Because he's life. You reconnect to him and it floods in. And this is where we end today. You live. That's what happened. That's what happens. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Can someone please tell me what kind of tense that is? Past, present or future? It's present. You don't get this prize at the end. You get it now. You get it now. This is the way C.S. Lewis put it in mere Christianity. Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? There's no way it couldn't happen. Once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? John speaks about eternal life this way. You go to John 17 verse 3. He uh, records the words of Jesus, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. The moment you come to know Jesus, eternal life happens, and there's this connection to Jesus, which gets to work against creeping death. 
This is why Paul can say this, 2 Corinthians 4.16. If you're old or older or getting old or you feel old and you feel like your body's just not working the way it's supposed to, this is your scripture, right? 2 Corinthians 4.16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. What's going on there? We're connected to Jesus and he's renewing us and he's pushing back creeping death. Even as the curse of sin and getting old and death in a physical sense is going to come to us, there's a pushback going on that's coming from our connection with him. So we start now. This is how it works. If you don't know Jesus, you can start now for you. You can start now. That's the essence of this verse. And here's where I want to finish this morning. Um, this is a, this might give some of you whiplash, but um, this is, I just want to, Finish by taking five, seven minutes on this one. What if you don't feel loved by God? That's a good question. What if you don't feel loved? I hear Christians talk about that reasonably frequently. As though there's some kind of experience they need to have which they haven't had. And I think you can have experiences like that. And I'll just, I just want to start out with an observation about feelings. Feelings don't always align with the truth. We know that feelings can, things can push our feelings around in such a way that our feelings get out of sync with what is actually true. Um, you know, you can see this in parents uh, with their children. You can see it in the children's responses to their, fear, the, to their parents. Like if there's situations going on where the parents are kind of stepping in and there's some discipline coming, uh, it's very easy for the children to go, you don't love me. I don't feel like you love me right now. But, but can you see what's going on there? There's a situation that's pushing the feelings around and it's actually getting them out of sync with reality. So let me change the question get us free from the snag because I think there's a a genuine thing here what about this question do you know you are loved by God now don't answer too quickly because I'm not asking whether you know theoretically that's something and that's important what I'm asking is do you know that you know that you know that God loves you do you now intellectual truth is part of this okay It's entirely possible there's people at church today who don't know that God loves them because no one's ever told them. And here's here's a really good reason why we need to tell people that God loves them and that he gave his son for them because there's a whole bunch of people out there that just don't know. So you need, if someone doesn't know, you just, well, that's good news. That's like best news ever. You know, this is how it works in relationships with other people, right? Um, Here's another thing that I hear sometimes, and please, it is not a criticism um, at all, but sometimes I hear people talk about their families and they go, my parents never told me that they loved me. And I think that's that's a bit sad, to be honest. Now, interestingly, people who say that normally say, but I knew that they loved me. And I think that's great. I think there's a lot of loving parents out there who never tell their kids that they love them. And I think that's great that their kids know that they're loved. But there's something about being told that someone loves you, isn't there? 
Like if your parents came out and they actually said, I really do love you, that would change things, wouldn't it? My dad didn't start telling me that he loved me until probably my mid-20s. I knew that he loved me. And now I'd struggle to get off the phone. He was kind of slipping it in all over the place now. (laughs) Some of you don't know God loves you because you don't know God or no one has ever told you that he loves you. And I want to say to you this morning that God loves you. He does love you. And I hope that this morning you've heard what he's like and you've heard me say that he loves you. You know, even on those who have been told, though, there can be a problem, right? And the problem is that we can be blind and we cannot see things that are true and right. I'm sure that many of you have told people around you that God loves them and they don't know that they're loved by God. And they need a, need a miracle done in their hearts. They need to be able to see God. They need to be drawn to him. They need some revelation that they don't have. Sometimes we don't know God loves us because we don't know the last bit this morning is sometimes we don't know God loves us because it doesn't stick. For many Christians, we know that God loves us and we have had moments where we've known that really, really deeply. But let's be honest, um, there's a bunch of us in this room and you, you don't talk about it. because You don't talk about this stuff at church. But, I mean, I am. But, but, but we don't really talk about it. It's like, because it, it's just, it's awkward, right? You just kind of go, I, I don't really feel like God loves me. I don't, and, and I'm not just even talking about a feeling kind of thing there. It's like, I, there's a deeper kind of thing going on there where it's like, yeah, like I've had moments, but most of the time I'm living with, living in the light of the fact that I just, uh, at, at best I don't know, I'm unsure. You know, sometimes this can happen because we get out of sync relationally with God. Um, it's hard to feel loved if you're off into a whole bunch of stuff that he told you not to get into. Um, it'd be like that in a marriage relationship, you know. If one of the spouses was heading off into all this stuff that was kind of against the spouse, it's kind of like, well, you're probably not going to feel or, or know that you're loved in a really, really deep sense. Um, in that context because you're off doing something else the connection isn't personal itself so why would you feel and know something personal um in that situation but here's here's the other thing maybe the worship team can come up some of it is shame territory um shame is about being unworthy unclean an exception dirty just plain not good enough it can come from the things that you do. It can come from things that people do to you. It can come from people or things that you're associated with. And the reality is that shame can stop God's love from sticking. remember uh, doing some stuff in a drug rehab center and one of the, um, the guys who was working through getting out of his addictions, he made this comment. He goes, you can only be loved to the extent that you're known. He was bang on. He was talking about the experience of telling his parents everything that he had done. And he had some wild stuff that went on in his past. And, and the reason why he said that, that you can only be loved to the extent that you're known, is because he knew that he was loved because he told his parents everything that he had done. He didn't leave a little bit of it, which created some nagging doubt for him. They just went, if they knew that, maybe they wouldn't 
they wouldn't love me. They, he let them know him fully. And one of the things that shame does is shame kind of closes us up and we don't, even though God knows everything, we know that he knows everything. We don't, we don't sit and talk about the stuff that feels really lousy inside of us. We don't really be known. And so we don't know that we're loved. I remember asking, um, I was talking with someone a while ago, um, a number of years ago actually, and they, 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 they just made this comment. They said, I, I'm just a little bit uncomfortable about God's love. And uh, I, said, I said to her, I said, why, why, why are you uncomfortable about it? She goes, I don't know. You know, we talked for a little bit and, and uh, toward the end of our conversation, we started talking about how uh, if, if, you, if you really believe that God loves you the way that Scripture says He does, you have to let Him see everything about you. You have to let Him know you fully. That's a bit probing. Here's, um, here's my last quick point. Shame will cause you to reinterpret Scripture. That's what it does. It's very powerful in doing it. So Peter can stand up the front and he can go, God loves you. And I bet you there's some of you here this morning who are hearing, God loves everyone except for me. You just, you rework stuff. You always rework stuff. That's, that's what shame does. It does it inside of me. It tells you lies. It tells you things that aren't true. God so loved you that he gave his only son that whosoever gives themselves to him and entrusts themselves to him has life. Do you want life? Why don't you stand with me and I'll pray and we'll sing. Jesus, we, um, the word says in uh, Ephesians 3 that your love surpasses knowledge. And uh, I pray today that you would, um, you would help us to receive it. And as Paul prayed in Ephesians 3, that you would give us strength to comprehend even a piece of your love, even if we don't know how much of a piece we've got just a piece of it a little bit more God today I pray that your spirit will cause us cause people today who don't know you to cry out daddy to you to draw close to you and uh, would you do that again for those who do know you, even those who have known you for 40 years, that they would cry out from their hearts to you. I love you.
and entrust themselves to you.